and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Today we're tuning into a House Budget Committee hearing on the need for a Fiscal Responsibility Commission, chaired by Republican Congressman from Texas Jody Arrington. The United States is $34 trillion in debt. That's up from $26.9 trillion in 2020, a 26% increase. This potential commission would be set up to deal with the national debt. Let's watch. The hearing will come to order. Today's hearing will focus on the need for a fiscal commission. We will discuss several legislative proposals to create a fiscal commission and hear testimony from several of our capable colleagues who have introduced legislation in the House and the Senate. The Senate panel will follow the House panel. We will um, uh, have uh, the colleagues testify this morning from the House. Leading off uh, is my dear friend Bill Heisinga from Michigan, serves on the Financial Services Committee, and my other dear friend Scott Peters. Both of them are uh, chairing, they're co-chairs of a bipartisan caucus that focuses on how to reform this dysfunctional budgetary process so we have more responsible behavior by members of Congress, better motivation for a greater and more responsible outcome for the American people. So I appreciate uh, y'all's leadership there. Um, they have introduced together H.R. 5779, the Fiscal Commission Act of 2023. <clears throat> Representatives uh, Steve Womack, uh, and Ed Case join us as, as well. Chairman Womack from Arkansas is chairing the Financial Services and General Government Subcommittee at the Appropriations Committee, former chairman of this august body and a mentor of mine, and I'm grateful that you continue to provide your insights to our committee um, to give us the best chance of success. And Ed Case, uh, Great member from Hawaii and a leader on this issue. Um, Mr. Case and Mr. Womack have introduced H.R. 710, the Sustainable Budget Act, and we appreciate uh, their uh, input and their leadership over the years uh, on this particular issue. And then we have with us Representative Lloyd Smucker, our very own from the Keystone State, who serves not only on Ways and Means, but also this committee and has had experience and experience with commissions solving big problems. And uh, he served uh, as chair of a commission in Pennsylvania that was successful, believe it or not. And we wanna learn uh, about the best practices uh, so that we can construct a commission that will ultimately work. As a friend of mine said in Washington, when all is said and done, more is said than done. And we don't have much more runway, Mr. Chairman, to talk about this issue and, and, and to not do anything about it uh, for the sake of our beloved country, its future, and our children's future in America. Jim Govern, uh, McGovern is a, a, another leader on, on a number of issues. He is uh, our ranking member on the Rules Committee. I say our because we're all on one team. This is not a Republican or Democrat problem. This is America's problem. It's our problem, and we've got to figure out how to solve it. Second uh, panel will include Senator Mitt Romney from Utah and Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. They've introduced uh, Senate Bill 3262. I think it's the companion bill 
of Mr. Peters and Heisinga's called the Fiscal uh, Stability Act of 2023. We look forward to hearing from them as well. At this time, I'd like to yield myself as much time as I may consume for an opening statement. And don't like to read opening statements. It's tattooed on my heart, this issue, uh, like I know it is for you all as our witnesses and many in this room who are deeply concerned about the bleak, fragile, and rapidly deteriorating fiscal state of affairs in this the greatest nation in human history. Let me start by again thanking the members who are testifying for their leadership on what I believe is the most significant challenge facing our nation in the 21st century, which is our runaway deficit spending and unsustainable national debt that threatens not only our economy, but our national security, our way of life, our leadership in the world, and everything good about America's influence and our children's future. I think it's worth repeating some of the startling statistics that demonstrate just how fragile the situation is and just how bad off we are um, from a fiscal uh, standpoint. 120% debt to GDP. This is the highest level of indebtedness in the history of our country surpassing World War II and we're not at war. We're in relative peace and prosperity, and it's only going to get worse. The CBO projection 30 years out has our indebtedness at twice the size of the largest economy in the world. Our annual deficits have reached almost $2 trillion this past year. CBO projects them to double. We will add $20 trillion if we just keep the policies as they are today, $20 trillion. 10 years. Now hear this, half of that 20 trillion is interest expenses alone. Chairman, we don't get another soldier or sailor uh, equipped for battle. We don't sustain the senior safety net. We get nothing for that. And the interest, according to CBO, will triple. It's almost three quarters of a trillion dollars this past year. It's projected to be a trillion dollars we will eclipse what we spend on national defense on interest alone. If that's not enough to wake all of us up and give us the sense of urgency to act, I don't know what will. No responsible leader can look at the rapid deterioration of our balance sheet, the CBO projection of these unsustainable deficits, and the long-term unfunded liabilities of our nation and not feel compelled to intervene and change course. No responsible leader can do that. As I said from the outset, this is the 21st century challenge for America. I believe this is our generation's world war, and the cost of losing this war will be catastrophic and irreparable. And I have three children. I imagine many of you have children and grandchildren, and they're counting on us to step up and be leaders and work together to solve the problem. If we don't have this sense of urgency, we don't have a plan, if we don't exercise political courage to execute the plan, we will be the first generation of leaders to fail to leave the country better than we found it. What a sad commentary. I refuse to accept that, and I know you do too. As I said before, this isn't a Republican or Democrat problem. This is our collective problem to solve, and it is a mathematic reality that will require real leadership on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers. 
Unfortunately, over the last uh, uh, several years, maybe even the last few decades, too many Americans have become desensitized to the trillions of dollars of, of accumulating debt, and too many lawmakers have been disengaged with the false sense of security that we can continue down this treacherous fiscal path without any real consequence. However, the past two years, I think, have provided a wake-up call. Record spending, $11 trillion, six of which has been added to the national debt, has resulted in a cost-of-living crisis for the American people. And because of inflation and because of soaring interest rates, the American people are waking up to the bad fiscal and monetary policies that are impacting their own pocketbooks. And that's not a... That, that, there's a silver lining there because they're engaged in this, which means we might have a fighting chance to actually address it together. As I've said before, this trajectory we're on is unsustainable, but it's not unfixable, and I believe that. But both parties have to acknowledge they've contributed to it. Mr. McGovern, the Republicans have made their fair share of contributions to get us in this financial mess, and I say it at every hearing. We don't get a pass. We don't get a pass. It's seven years since I've been here, I've watched it. Waving pay-fors, waving spending caps, and the list goes on of fiscal recklessness and irresponsibility of both parties. So, now that I've called out both sides, Mr. Ranking Member, I don't think a fiscal commission is the panacea for all of our financial woes. I, I just don't think there's a silver bullet. At the end of the day, we have to have the political courage as a body to cut through the brinkmanship, the weaponization, the fear-mongering that we get from the outside and the inside. And we have to, we have to hold hands, as they say, and move forward with courage for the sake of our seniors, who are now in jeopardy of insolvency in two very important safety net programs that they rely on, but also for our children. I know I'm going over time. I can see you kind of getting restless, but I'm just getting warmed up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, but guys, I've met with a lot of interest groups, some of them with a very righteous cause, many of them with a mutual interest. I've yet to meet with the people who represent my children. I've yet to meet with the people who are concerned about a country that is, has been bankrupted because of our recklessness. We're sowing the wind and our children will reap the whirlwind of this fiscal disaster if we don't work together and do it quickly. Welcome back. Today we're watching a House Budget Committee hearing on the need for a Fiscal Responsibility Commission chaired by Republican Congressman from Texas, Jody Arrington. The United States is $34 trillion in debt. That's up from $26.9 trillion in 2020, a 26% increase over three years. This potential commission would be set up to deal with the national debt. Let's get back to it. So. We're going to evaluate these proposals. We're going to look for common themes. We're going to ask a lot of questions about the various contours and constructs and structural designs so that 
if we can move forward with a bipartisan, bicameral fiscal commission, even though I don't think there's a silver bullet out there, maybe, just maybe, it will provide a forum, Ed Case, for constructive, like real constructive, not posing for cameras and posturing for different groups, but real constructive dialogue that could lead to a real outcome with a real impact on the national debt and put us on a, a more sustainable path for the sake of our great country and our children. Amen? And the people said, amen. With that, I yield as much time as my ranking member uh, shall desire to make his opening. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and I appreciate uh, your uh, passion for this issue. And I also, I, I hope they know I respect every single one of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle and appreciate their uh, sincerity when, when it comes to this issue. Um, I, I don't know how to uh, go about this without being repetitive because we just had a hearing on exactly this topic a couple weeks ago. Uh, and so I don't want to repeat everything that I said then, um, but some of that uh, overlap will obviously be unavoidable. Uh, for those of you who were at our last hearing uh, just a couple weeks ago on this topic, you know that I have real skepticism when it comes to the topic of commissions. Um, I thought the uh, panel that we had a couple weeks ago um, of those members, former members of the House and current members uh, or current member of the House who uh, participated in prior commissions, talked about their experiences, every one of those commissions ultimately ended in failure. So rather than focus on commission, which ultimately is about process, I want to focus my remarks actually on substance and very specifically on Social Security. Here's why. Uh, as someone who watches the Republican presidential debates, Ooh. I have been, uh, I, I have interesting viewing habits, I know. Um, I have been struck by how a number of the leading candidates have flat out said they want to raise the retirement age. One of the leading candidates uh, who just got a major endorsement from a Republican establishment group yesterday, she has repeatedly said, we need to raise the retirement age from 65. She seems to be entirely unaware that the retirement age for Social Security hasn't been 65 for quite some time. Almost a decade ago, when my father, after 50 years of hard work at blue-collar jobs, from the age of 16 to the age of 67, went ahead and retired. His retirement age then was 66. In a few years, it'll be 67. Because of changes that were made in a law that passed this body in 1983. So if someone wants to send an email to the governor of South Carolina and let her know this, it would be wonderful. I would also let, uh, like people to know a few other facts about Social Security greatest anti-poverty program in American history. Just think, back in the throes of the Great Depression, 46% of seniors lived in poverty. Today, that number is a fraction of that. So those who were saying that in order to save the program, we have to uh, extract exorbitant cuts, or we have to raise the retirement age, I don't know, to 70? beyond, 
That's a little like saying uh, we need to burn the village in order to save it. It just isn't true. And as I pointed out uh, the very last hearing, I have um, actually put down a plan on paper that would extend the life of the Social Security Trust Fund through the year 2100. I have a piece of legislation, Sheldon Whitehouse, the um, uh, senator from Rhode Island who is the chairman of our counterpart, the Senate Budget Committee. He and I have a bill that would do that for Social Security, simply by bringing in more revenues, those who make more than $400,000 a year. Now, some might object to more revenues uh, coming in um, to the Social Security pot. I would say two things in response. First, and this comes up Every single time I have a town hall, whether it was in person or a teletown hall, maybe some of you have had the same experience. For years and years, Social Security Trust Fund was running a surplus. The 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. And here's where I would, I would agree with the chairman. Congress is under the control of both parties. Instead of using that surplus to set it aside for future retirees so it would be there, they decided to spend that surplus to meet what were the needs of the current day. That is a tragedy. Uh, you know, I, I remember those great Saturday Night Live um, skits about Al Gore and making fun of his lockbox in the year 2000. But you know, he was right. Had that surplus been saved in a lockbox or whatever you want to call it, there would be more revenue available now that those who were earning uh, those wages to pay those social security taxes back in the 70s and 80s and 90s and aughts, now that they're retiring today. Um, so it is only fair that more revenue is brought into the system when you consider back when there was more revenue than was going out to meet the needs of retirees then, that money was spent on things that were other than social security. So, um, I think that it is entirely uh, appropriate uh, when it comes to uh, extending the life of the Social Security Trust Fund. I would also point out, and this has come up repeatedly throughout the year that we've had here in this room of hearings, when you take the 2001 George W. Bush tax cuts that weren't paid for, the 2003 Bush tax cuts that weren't paid for, the reauthorization of most of that a decade later, and then the 2017 TCJA, uh, I asked numerous witnesses, what is the cumulative amount of those tax cuts that weren't paid for? And the figure that was cited repeatedly at that table was $10 trillion. So when we look at that national debt of about 33 trillion, remember, about 10 of that is missing revenue from the last 22 years of tax cuts that weren't paid for. So. Um, I appreciate, again, the sincerity of those uh, who believe that a commission would be a better process. But as I pointed out a couple weeks ago, and I'll repeat today, whether it's a commission or some other process, in the end of the day, it will come down to individuals voting from a couple menus of options. And the main menu will have either more revenues or cuts or some combination of thereof. And you can have the greatest, biggest blue ribbon possible and put that on a commission. That won't be a substitute for the fact that ultimately, individuals will have to put up a vote either saying, yes, this is how we're going to raise more revenue, or yes, this is how we're going to 
uh, enact cuts. I'm very clear the side that I come on. It would be very easy and intellectually dishonest if I sat here and said, oh, we don't need more revenues uh, and things are going to be perfectly fine. No, I acknowledge, as I've said, the Social Security Trust Fund is projected to fall short of meeting 75% of benefits somewhere between the year 2033 and 2034. Um, the um, trustees of Social Security say it's 2034. CBO says it's 2033. We can safely say in roughly a decade um, we will meet a critical point. It's pretty clear on what side I come down. More revenues into the Social Security Trust Fund and we will be able to say for the lifetime of my daughter, who in the year 2100, uh, God willing, if she's still alive, would be 86 years old, I'll be able to look her in the eye and say, Social Security will be there for the rest of uh, your lifetime and beyond that, simply by bringing in more revenues from those who are in the top 1% of earners. I think that is fair. I think that is appropriate. And for those who disagree, I would be very interested in seeing what their plan is and their alternative. And with that, uh, I'll yield back. Thank you, Chairman. I thank my ranking member just for the audience and for context. The Democrats had total control of Congress the last couple of years, and none of those that, that vision uh, or those proposals have come to fruition. And Republicans had total control of Congress when I got here. Both sides have contributed. Neither of them have, have passed a Social Security uh, proposal, a uh, solvency proposal. And both parties have contributed to our growing deficits and debt. I think that's just a fact I think everybody needs to keep in mind um, when I say no party gets a pass. But I appreciate the sincere you know, views and your vision for um, addressing the solvency of Social Security. Now, let's... Uh, move on to our panelists. If there are any other member who, or organization who has written statements for the record, I'll hold the record open till the end of the day to accommodate those who may not have had prepared written statements. Once again, I'd like to welcome our panel of witnesses. On behalf of our committee, thank you for your time and your insights. Committees received your written statements, will be made part of the formal hearing record. You will each have three minutes to deliver your oral remarks. I now yield three minutes to Representative Bill Heisinga. Welcome back. We're watching a House Budget Committee hearing on the need for a Fiscal Responsibility Commission, chaired by Republican Congressman from Texas, Jody Arrington. The United States is $34 trillion in debt. That's up from $26.9 trillion in 2020, a 26% increase over three years. This potential commission would be set up to deal with the national debt. Let's tune in. Representative Bill Heisinger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member. I'm gonna go quickly on this with this three minutes. And as has been acknowledged, our national debt is now $33.8 trillion and climbing. Just the interest we pay on this debt already exceeds everything we spend on children. And within three years, the amount we pay on interest will eclipse our defense budget. 
Social Security will become insolvent, insolvent by 2034, forcing a 23% mandatory cut. Medicare Part A will be depleted by 2031, even sooner than Social Security, resulting in an 11% cut. As has been noted, this isn't a Republican saying this. It's not Democrats saying this. It is the trustees of these trust funds themselves. So I'm not interested in a partisan food fight either. I want results that protect our seniors and current beneficiaries while preserving these key programs for future generations. If the status quo holds and Congress does nothing, simply put, it will result in a cut. A path, best path forward, in fact, the only path forward, in my opinion, is a bipartisan, bicameral solution such as the Fiscal Commission Act. Uh, before you or the public, frankly, writes this off as, quote, just another commission, uh, know that we can learn from both the failures and the successes of our nation's long history of utilizing commissions. For example, for example, Simpson Bowles suffered from an atmosphere of partisanship, much like what we see now, yet it focused the national conversation on fiscal reforms. And whereas Greenspan Commission benefited from a clearer purpose, fostering agreement that helped rescue Social Security was the, the end result. Acknowledging these lessons, I uh, introduced the Fiscal Commission Act in September along with my, uh, my BFF, my uh, co-chair of the Bipartisan Fiscal Forum, uh, Scott Peters, which has gained 20 evenly divided partisan co-sponsors. Our commission proposal features equal representation from both chambers and both parties, is transparent and focused on clear goals, retaining Congress's constitutional duties, and has real teeth. Specifically, our bill forces Congress to vote on a package of proposals offered by this bipartisan bicameral fiscal commission. It begins with the four corners of the congressional leadership, each appointing four members to the commission, 16 appointees total. Three of each leader's selections must be colleagues from our respective chambers, in addition to one individual from the private sector. This commission must craft a package of recommendations to both improve the fiscal situation in the medium term, as well as to achieve a sustainable debt to GDP ratio in the long term. For any recommendations related to federal programs for which a federal trust fund exists, the commission must improve their solvency for a period of 75 years. No stone can be or hopefully will be left unturned, Mr. Chairman. In the first week after the 2024 election then, the commission must vote to report its proposal to Congress. After that, before the lame duck, duck session ends, both the House and the Senate must put the proposal to an up or down vote without amendment and without delay. So let's be clear. I don't expect that this will be an easy vote for any of us, and frankly, Congress has proven it's not able to simply pass a bill, like, uh, like many have, have noted. Yet, I believe a fiscal commission may not be the magic potion, as the chairman had said, and it may fail. It may. But we cannot stop trying. And I do believe this is the most practical and immediate way Congress can break the status quo here in Washington. With that, I yield back. Thank the gentleman from Michigan. And now yield to the gentleman from California, Mr. Scott Peters, for three minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Ranking Member, for holding this uh, hearing. Despite a healthy economy, our, our country's deficit is growing. We are borrowing nearly $2 trillion a year just to pay our expenses. And as a result, this year we're spending more than $663 billion on interest alone. That's more than we spend on Medicaid. That's more than we spend on our children, soon to be more than we spend on defense. Democrats should be very worried about what the ballooning debt and interest payments will mean for current and future investments in our kids. These interest payments crowd out the investments we want to make, like an expanded child tax credit, 
Crowd out investments like making a college affordable and expanding apprenticeships. Crowd out our ability to ensure the clean energy transition leaves no one behind. I've heard many of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle uh, contend, sometimes emphatically, sometimes indignantly, that we should get our debt under control through regular order with the tools we already have. And of course, they're right, we should do that. But I've been here now almost 11 years. It's clear to me and everyone in this room that we're not gonna do that, that this process we have today um, is it doesn't allow us to get to 218 and 60 uh, to, to um, spend more, to, to spend less, and to keep, uh, to keep tax policy right. Uh, we're going to need something outside of that. Indignity will not solve our problem. And it's a problem of historic proportions. It did not appear overnight. Our failure to manage the national debt is not the sole responsibility of one party or one administration, as the point's been made. Over the last 20, 20 years, our conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq President Bush's tax cuts, President Obama's extension of the Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts, and vital COVID relief programs, on top of our trillions in annual borrowing, remember, two trillion every year, have added more than $10 trillion to the national debt. When the Trump tax cuts expire in a couple of years, we will have a lot of pressure to extend those tax cuts. A commission with outside experts can help sure, ensure we are driven by the truth about what really happens to the deficits when we do that. Finally, a lot of folks have said that Republicans want to cut um, Medicare and Social Security. I believe that some of them do. Uh, under current law, Republicans are in the driver's seat. Current law says in 10 years when the trust fund is insolvent, there will be automatic cuts to close the gap. An overnight 23% benefit cut for the average recipient on the order of $17,000 a year. And I worry that if come, 20, come 2033, a year before we go insolvent, Republicans say, okay, let's compromise, let's call it a 15 or 20% cut, and they'll have all the leverage in the room. The best thing we could do to protect Medicare or Social Security is to act now, and to act now to get something that can get 60 votes in the Senate and 218 votes in this House and a presidential signature. A commission gives us a fact-driven venue instead of some waiting until the last minute, backdoor, 11th hour deal between party leaders to do that. And I think we should take advantage of it. So I introduced the Bipartisan Fiscal Commission, which uh, Bill Heising has explained. Uh, I welcome your thoughts, input, and recommendations to ensure we can make this process better. A commission is a good start. I think it's the best chance we have to deal with these problems. Um, and I look forward to working with all of you to, to get a resolution, not just on this process, but on the policy. Thank you, I yield back. I thank my friend from California, now yield three minutes to the chairman um, for three minutes uh, for opening remarks. I'm not going to read my prepared remarks, uh, seek unanimous consent that they be entered into the record as uh, submitted to the committee. Just have a couple of observations and then I think it's important that we get to the questions and answers. First of all. Without objection, so ordered. Thank you. Uh, first of all, let me just say this with all due respect to my colleagues, the only people that can fix this is the United States Congress. And to think that the United States Congress is going to be willing to do this is laughable. That's why I support a fiscal commission. We need an outside group of experts to help us understand what the absolute truth is. Now, I have advocated for, uh, for a long time, a fiscal state of the union a joint session of Congress specifically designed to target, I believe, the most important and incredible threat to the republic as we know it, 
and that is the fiscal condition of this country. I personally think it would be much more beneficial to have a fiscal State of the Union than that theater that we have once a year, sometime early in the year, uh, called the State of the Union. Uh, but I've got a couple of observations that I want to make. We have spent, this Congress has spent the better part of this year going into last year debating the spending on the discretionary side of the budget. It's about a third of government spending, probably a little less. But we have tried to convince through our actions that the, that, that the way we're going to fix the fiscal condition of this country is by having these big food fights on discretionary spending. And that's only going to touch the edges. The real issues out there are in the entitlement programs, and we have to do something. Now, I will say this, that if we, if we wanted, we, either Republicans or Democrats, wanted to cut those programs, we would do exactly what we are doing today, nothing, because those programs are going to be cut on their own in due time. So I support a fiscal commission. Now, Ed and I, Ed Case and I, have jointly worked since 2019 <clears throat> on this sustainable budget formula, and we'll talk about that today, and, and that is a way forward. Now, it uses a debt-to-GDP target. It doesn't, it, it doesn't go after specific changes uh, to get where we need, but we do need a fiscal commission to help us outline what are the options. Uh, Brendan Boyle talks about revenues. Um, if revenues need to be part of that discussion, the Fiscal Commission needs to tell us revenues are part of it. If raising the age needs to be part of that discussion, then the Fiscal Commission will tell us that raising the age. I would submit to you, and then I'll yield back my time, that, that given the condition that we're in today, you cannot rationally take any option off the table because it only increases the cost of the remaining options. So with that said, uh, I, I support anything that works to get us to an end result that can save the fiscal condition of our country. I yield back. Thank you for staying with us. Today we're tuning in to a House Budget Committee hearing on the need for a Fiscal Responsibility Commission chaired by a Republican Congressman from Texas, Jody Arrington. The United States is $34 trillion in debt. That's up from $26.9 trillion in 2020, a 26% increase over three years. This potential commission would be set up to deal with the national debt. Let's watch. The Honorable Ed Case, three minutes. Uh, Mr. Chair, Ranking Member, good morning. Aloha. You have my written testimony, which I'm not going to re repeat, but I will summarize it. Number one, our federal finances are in dire straits and declining. Number two, continued inaction will prove disastrous. Number three, Congress has proven absolutely unable to do our job, at least without some help. And number four, a truly bipartisan, inclusive fiscal commission can and will help. I'd like to instead spend my time responding to some of the principal arguments against a commission. The first principal argument is, goes like this. We don't need it because we're not in trouble to start with. This is denial at its most insidious. We are in deep trouble and heading in the wrong way by any metric whatsoever, and the consequences of inaction will include forced and indiscriminate reductions in core 
base federal defense and non-defense spending and foundational entitlement programs such as Social Security and Medicare, and we do a disservice to the tens of millions on Social Security and Medicare and the tens of millions more that are coming up on it by not stating that very frontally. The American people agree that this is a problem. In my reliable Democratic district, it is one of the top issues that is of concern to my Democratic constituents. This is not a partisan issue. The number two argument goes like this. Fiscal commissions supersede Congress's role. No, we always retain our role at the end of the day. We have not ceded our responsibility, but we have not been able to do our job. And if we could do our job, then maybe we wouldn't need a fiscal commission, but we haven't, and we do. We have the ultimate decision. The question is how to present that decision to us in a way that we will, in fact, make the decisions that need to be done. The third argument goes like this, and we heard it from my respected ranking member. Fiscal commissions have failed. They don't work. Um, well, that's a matter of definition. First of all, uh, my, my colleague cited the successes in 1983 to save Social Security for 50 years. That came about because of a commission, the Greenspan Commission, which recommended the way forward to save Social Security. That worked. Um, the Simpson-Bowles Commission, which is much, mis much uh, maligned, actually did work in the sense of framing the issues to Congress, which led to the negotiations that did actually provide some a better path for our fiscal uh, uh, situation, at least for some period of time. So they can work even if ultimately Congress doesn't agree with them. And fourth, um, substantively, the, the argument goes like this. Let's skip forward to the feared result of the, social, uh, of the fiscal commission and therefore deny that we need a fiscal commission to start with. Let's just start debating the merits. The fact is that if we could actually have that uh, debate on the merits, um, in Congress in a reasoned, inclusive, broad way that we would do so. But the Fiscal Commission needs to frame those issues and so to skip forward to a presumed result against the commissions is the wrong way to look at it. We, need, uh, we obviously need to make those decisions, but we need the help of a commission to get to those basic um, decisions to start with. So the bottom line here is if you do agree that there is a major problem or a crisis, then how are you going to solve it? Because you haven't, we haven't. A fiscal commission is the best way forward um, through a difficult but unavoidable debate. And we can talk about how that commission gets put forward and put together. But the bottom line is um, it's not really the process that matters, but the putting together of the commission to start with that we need to start um, there. Thank you. I thank the gentleman from Hawaii and now yield three minutes to the ranking member, Mr. McGovern. Well, Chairman Arrington and Ranking Member Boyle, thank you and for inviting me to testify. I want to say that it's an honor to be here alongside my colleagues who I know all care deeply about this issue and I look forward to a productive conversation. I may be a little bit of an outlier on this panel, but let me say up front that I am deeply skeptical of a fiscal commission. First, there already is a bipartisan forum where these kinds of decisions should get made. It's called Congress and we shouldn't pass the buck to a fiscal commission to do the work that we ourselves don't want to do. If we don't want to do it, maybe we should leave. There isn't some secret formula. We either cut spending, tax the rich, or a combination of both. We don't need a commission to tell us that. We just need common sense. And I want to echo what the former chairman of this committee, Mr. Yarmouth, said in October on the same issue. The problem is not the process, it's the people. There is no shortage of legislation to address our fiscal challenges. 
Legislation has been introduced to extend Social Security solvency indefinitely, to demand that the Pentagon actually pass an audit, and to end the billions of dollars of subsidies we give to Big Oil, just to name a few. Committees and subcommittees of jurisdiction can hold hearings and markups. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what the American people pay us to do. The buck should stop with us. We also don't need a commission to acknowledge a few simple mathematical facts. And as the chairman says, no one has clean, clean hands here. But for decades, Republicans have driven up the debt with their tax cuts for billionaires and big corporations. Of the $33.8 trillion national debt, $10 trillion, nearly a third, is from the Bush and Trump tax cuts. My friends on the other side promised that both of those tax cuts would trickle down and pay for themselves. They were wrong. In fact, without those tax cuts, revenues would have kept up with spending indefinitely. And the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have and will add another $6.5 trillion to our debt. Look, look back further. Bill Clinton balanced the budget after Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush racked up the debt. And today, Republicans are still pushing bills that would increase the deficit. The very first bill this Congress uh, considered was a giveaway to ultra-rich tax evaders that would add $114 billion to the deficit, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. So I'm a little skeptical of the sudden realization from my friends that they care about this issue. My friends tell us that millionaires and billionaires can't pay a cent more in taxes and not a dollar can be saved from the Pentagon's bloated budget where we know waste runs rampant. But when the time comes to pay for it all, we want, they want to nickel and dime American families. Look at Social Security. Um, it should be a national scandal that middle and working class families have to pay Social Security taxes on all of their income, but millionaires and billionaires do not. And if we want to ensure long-term solvency, there are two choices. Some on the other side think we should cut benefits. I think we should ask the ultra-rich to pay their fair share. We don't need a commission to tell us that. And my fear is that a commission would be used by some as an excuse to slash Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and other federal anti-poverty programs. Now, I know some of you are thinking that I'm just a tax-and-spend Massachusetts liberal, but I think that investing in our people actually saves us money. Look at hunger. It's not just a moral problem, it's an economic one. Hunger in America costs us tens of billions of dollars every year in the form of increased healthcare costs, lost productivity, kids who can't learn, I go on and on. Investing in our anti-hunger safety net will actually save us money in the, in the long term. Now, I hear some of my colleagues say that they lose sleep over the debt. Well, let me tell you what I lose sleep over. There are 40 million hungry people in this country, half a million people who sleep out on the streets every night, seniors on fixed incomes who can't make ends meet. Those are the things I lose sleep over. And so, yes, we ought to talk about the debt and do something, but the real challenge here is an increase in extremism and a lack of political will to make the wealthy pay their fair share and cut our bloated and wasteful military budget. I thank you, and I yield back my time. I think, Mr. McGovern, you're not just a liberal from Massachusetts. You're a good man who happens to be a liberal from <laughs> Massachusetts. And I appreciate your compassionate and thoughtful uh, insight. Now, to round it, uh, the committee or panelists out with final comments from our fellow budget committee member and my dear friend who cares a lot about this issue, Lloyd Smucker, tell us about that commission in Pennsylvania. How did it work? How, how in the world was that commission successful? Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, for uh, this important hearing and for the opportunity to share with you some of my thoughts regarding uh, fiscal commission. I believe our debt 
and our fiscal trajectory pose an existential threat to America's future, and I think establishing a commission is our best chance of addressing it. And I say that based on my experience with a highly successful commission in Pennsylvania, uh, which I, I would say was perhaps the most successful uh, legis legislative effort that I've ever been part of. Now, I will acknowledge to those who've mentioned they're skeptical of commissions that many commissions do fail. They're right on that. But this is one that was very successful, and everyone associated with it believed that. So it was the Basic Education Funding Commission established in 2014, and in this case, it was to address a decades-old problem that existed in Pennsylvania of how uh, state dollars were divided among the 500 school districts there. It was bipartisan, bicameral, and it also included representatives of the governor's administration. The commission held hearings around the state for over a year, receiving testimony and input from all stakeholder groups, from experts, and even any member of the public who wanted to participate. It worked across two legislative sessions, and interestingly, also across two governor's administrations, first a Republican governor uh, and then a Democrat. Recommendations were released unanimously by the commission members in June of 2015, and they were enacted into law in 2016. So in a relatively short period of time, this commission solved a, a really very difficult and what had previously been seen as sort of an unsolvable problem. Some factors that were critical to its success. There was broad bipartisan agreement in the legislature on the nature and scope of the problem. For a fiscal commission to work, both parties must believe that it's necessary. And that goes for leadership as well. If either party or the president opposes a fiscal commission, it just simply will not work. The right people were placed on the commission. They were members who had skin in the game, including the chairs and minority chairs of relevant committee. And by the way, just to correct the record slightly, I was not the chair of this commission. There were two capable, uh, capable co-chairs. I was a member as the chair of the education committee in, this, in the state senate at that point. But I suggest that our fiscal commission here should include the chairs and ranking members of relevant committees, like the Budget Committee, the House Ways and Means Committee, Senate Finance Committee, and the Senate Budget Committee as well, as well as speaker appointees, and I think members of the administration are critical as well. And this concludes our coverage of the House Budget Committee hearing on the need for a Fiscal Responsibility Commission. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Talks underway to further extend the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Over 160 hostages remain in the hands of the Hamas terror group. House Republican leadership fully supporting the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Speaker Mike Johnson speaks on the latest updates. Do Democrats take the black vote for granted? A Black Lives Matter leader explains why he's now voting for former President Trump and not for Democrats anymore. Understanding the importance of the Arctic for U.S. homeland security. A House committee is delving into the issue with a hearing. 
The first ever NATO-Ukraine Council. We bring you what NATO says about Russia's strategy for the winter, a season which has historically helped Russia win wars. A U.S. military aircraft crashes into the sea off Japan, killing at least one crew member on board. Search and rescue efforts are underway. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. The extended ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is set to expire tonight, but talks are underway in Qatar between the two sides with mediators to further extend the truce. Israel has vowed to continue fighting after the ceasefire ends. Here's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. There is no way we are not going back to fight to the end. This is my policy. The entire cabinet stands behind it. The entire government stands behind it. The soldiers stand behind it. The people stand behind it. This is exactly what we will do. Israel is facing mounting international pressure, including from the Biden administration, to extend the truce for a second time. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is making his third trip to the Middle East since the war began. He said the Biden administration would like to see a new ceasefire extension. An Arab diplomat told NBC that the new extension would be for at least two more days. So far, 81 hostages have been freed, including 12 last night. Israel said roughly 161 hostages are still held in Gaza, including four minors and 10 people aged 75 and older. 35 of the remaining hostages are women and 15 are foreigners. Anti-Semitism in the U.S. is on the rise, especially on college campuses. The presidents of Harvard, MIT and the University of Pennsylvania will testify before Congress. House lawmakers will hold a hearing about anti-Semitism on college campuses next week. Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox is the chairwoman of the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. She says college administration, administrators have allowed anti-Semitic rhetoric to fester and grow. She's not the only one holding that view. Some Republicans have been accusing colleges of doing everything they can to limit so-called hate speech against minorities, but not when it comes to Israel and Jews. The three presidents are set to answer questions next Tuesday. And today, a major address regarding anti-Semitism. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer last night said anti-Semitism is a crisis in the country. As the highest-ranking Jewish elected official, he said, I feel compelled to speak about it. Schumer cited boycotts and vandalism against Jewish-owned businesses, which he said have nothing to do with Israel, and Jewish students being harassed on college campuses. He warned that, quote, legitimate criticism of Israel, Israeli policies have often crossed over into something darker. I implore every person, every community, every institution to stand with Jewish Americans, not to ignore it, not to shrug your shoulders, to denounce it, anti-Semitism in all its forms, especially the double standard that has been wielded against the Jewish people for generations to isolate us. The time for solidarity must be now, 
Nothing less than the future of the American experiment hangs in the balance. Building a more perfect union, one that fulfills our founding ideals, is our longest and most solemn struggle as a country. And as Americans, we are called on to do all we can to achieve that higher standard. Looking now at the southern border, according to the Daily Caller, some immigrants are now being processed virtually by Border Patrol agents in other parts of the country. And just earlier this week, CBP said it would temporarily suspend and reduce vehicle processing at ports of entry in Texas and Arizona, another effort to marshal resources and deal with the surge of people crossing. All this on the backdrop of a surge of people on the terror watch list identified at the southwest border, 169 in the last fiscal year. And, of course, two major wars and increasing tensions abroad. Earlier, we spoke with former Chief of U.S. Border Patrol Rodney Scott, who's now a senior fellow with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Watch. Rodney, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, now, considering the continuing surge of people at the border and this heightened worry about the possibility of Hamas terrorists crossing the border, what's your assessment of that risk? Uh, very high. The threat's very real. We've had documented ties between Hamas and cartel uh, for drug smuggling going back years, many, many years. Uh, we've had known uh, individuals that actually support Hamas financially uh, crossing into the United States. And then today, we have thousands of people crossing in every single day that we have no idea who they are, no way to vet them. So that threat is higher than ever. And a month ago, Joni Ernst and 10 other senators wrote a letter to Joe Biden sounding the alarm over this. What do you think about the way that it, this threat has been handled so far? This administration refuses to acknowledge any threat on the border whatsoever. Uh, I wrote letters uh, to both the oversight committees in the House and the Senate when I retired, highlighting my concerns that it, everything that has happened was going to happen, specifically focusing on some of the terrorist threats and the increase of people on the terrorist watch list we were seeing. But this administration wants everybody to think this is simply a migration and a humanitarian issue on the border, and they refuse to talk about any of the threats because they have no answers for it. And that's a huge threat in itself. What are the most pressing challenges that the border is facing at this point? So really, the border security, people are really complicated. It's, it's pretty simple. We need, as a nation, to pick and choose who comes into our country. We need to make conscious decisions. Today, Customs and Border Protection cannot do that because they're completely overwhelmed with these massive numbers. Uh, we don't have good databases around the world to say who is and isn't a threat. So it comes down to law enforcement interviews face to face to figure out who the person is in front of you and if they pose a threat to our nation. They can't do that today because they don't have time. And so now, of course, there are reports of virtual processing of some of these migrants and even the suspension of various other types of processing, say vehicles coming across the border at some points. What are the effects of, could you just, first of all, describe what that involves? And then what are the effects of these changes, would you say? Sure. So virtual processing is like a Zoom call or a Skype call. It's basically leveraging CBP and Border Patrol personnel from around the whole country to help process people and to get them through the system. So somebody that's caught at the border will be sat in front of a, a, a camera and they'll be talking to an agent in another part of the country. Uh, as you know, Zoom calls aren't the best for actually picking up on, you know, body language and everything else. 
But the other thing is, this is a reminder to America that this is not a Southwest border problem. This is a national security problem. We are draining our law enforcement resources from CBP and Border Patrol from around the entire country to simply process people. And when I say process in this case, it's just grabbing biometric information, whatever they provide you very quickly, biographical, putting that into a system and pushing them down the line. Many of them will be released into the United States. They call home and the next wave comes. This is unsustainable and it's and a huge given, threat. Now, given your experience serving under many different administrations at the border, what policies or approaches do you think have been most impactful in securing the border? The most impactful is consequences. And if we look at the last administration, this specific to the threat we have today of this exploiting the, the asylum process, to force people to stay in custody or to remain outside the country until an actual judge adjudicates their case, all but completely solved this problem. It wiped out about 80% of the fraud overnight. It dramatically slowed down the flow and it allowed agents to spend more time on the individuals in front of them to be able to detect that deception and those hidden agendas that, that you know aren't going to show up in a records check. Congress does need to fix the asylum system, but we today with policy could fix about 80% of this by simply making people wait outside the country until their case is adjudicated. All right, Rodney Scott, Senior Fellow for Border Security at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and retired Chief of U.S. Border Patrol. Thank you so much. Thank you. The House GOP leadership providing updates on their impeachment inquiry into President Biden. House Speaker Mike Johnson says he fully supports the committee chairman leading the investigations. Biden family members and their affiliate companies received over $15 million from foreign companies and foreign nationals. These are all facts. Facts are stubborn things. That included Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, Romania, and China. Biden business associates received an additional $9 million. The, the, the chairman here have uncovered a lot of facts. President Biden has, of course, lied at least 16 times about his involvement in his family's business schemes. House Republicans announced they are opening a website for all information on the investigations into the Biden family. Johnson said the next step in the investigation is calling in key witnesses to testify. And the committee in charge have already issued some subpoenas. The House Speaker said House Republicans are fully committed to continue with the investigations. He expects more to come in the coming days. A former Black Lives Matter leader is explaining why he's endorsing former President Trump. Earlier this month, the co-founder of BLM Rhode Island said he's disappointed by the Democratic Party. Here he is on Fox News yesterday explaining further. It's the duplicity of the Democrats, mm. the hypocrisy. Um, we're not stupid. The brothers are not stupid. We, we understand when someone's for us and when someone is not. And it's obvious that the Democratic Party is not for us. Yeah, I, I can't. Their, 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 their policies actually strike at the heart of the black family and the nuclear family. Mark Fisher says he's still affiliated with Black Lives Matter. He accuses Democrats of not helping black people while at the same time taking the black vote for granted. And two more endorsements for the former president. The first one is Montana Congressman Ryan Zinke. He announced he's complete. He announces complete and total endorsement for Trump. I think he cites Trump's record in preserving peace in the Middle East, energy independence, and America first policies. The second one is Republican mega donor Bernie Marcus. He's the co-founder of Home Depot. Marcus said he'd still donate money to Trump's campaign, even if the former president was convicted of a crime. 
Marcus and his wife were the seventh largest individual Republican donors in the 2020 election cycle, giving nearly $25 million to Republican campaigns. How important is the Arctic region to U.S. Homeland Security? The House Homeland Security Committee is holding a hearing now to delve into the issue. We all know, and you mentioned it, Mr. Chairman, we are in a new era of authoritarian aggression led by the dictators Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. They are running hostile regimes that seek to control access to the Arctic region and, importantly and dangerously, are increasingly working together in the Arctic. Alaska's proximity to both Russia and China requires that my state play a vital role in securing America's interests in the Arctic. Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska was one of the witnesses to testify. He's stressed the vital importance of his state to U.S. homeland security in the Arctic. The senator compared the strength of Russian and Chinese forces in the region to that of the U.S., and he also highlighted recent joint military activities by China and Russia near Alaska. Sullivan called for more funding for Alaska's defense infrastructure and urged Congress to take seriously the role that his state plays in defending the Arctic. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter will be laid to rest in her birthplace of Plains, Georgia. The small town is where she and her husband, former President Jimmy Carter, started their journey to the White House. A funeral is underway at Marantha Baptist Church. The service comes on the last of three days of public tributes that began Monday. Rosalind Carter will be buried in a plot she will one day share with her husband. The 99-year-old former first former president first met his wife when she was a newborn. Jimmy and Rosalind Carter were married for 77 years, the longest of any presidential couple. The former president was in attendance in his wheelchair. Rosalind Carter was a global figure whose efforts impacted lives, advocating for mental health care and women's rights. Despite her global influence, she remained rooted in her small town southern origins. She passed away last Sunday at the age of 96. Coming up, the Apple Card and Apple's high-yield savings account could be going away. We have what you need to know. And Michigan working to curb deceptive uses of artificial intelligence. Campaigns in the state will be required to disclose which political ads were created using AI. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Michigan is joining an effort to curb deceptive uses of artificial intelligence. Campaigns will be required to disclose which political ads airing in Michigan were created using AI. The legislation is expected to be signed in the coming days by Governor Gretchen Whitmer. AI-generated deepfakes within 90 days of an election would be prohibited without a separate disclosure. Deepfakes are media that misrepresent someone as doing or saying something they didn't. The technology could be used to mislead voters, impersonate candidates, and undermine elections. Campaigns in violation could face up to 93 days in prison, a fine of up to $1,000 or both. There are increasing concerns that generative AI will be used in the 2024 presidential race. Congress and the Federal Elections Commission are considering similar legislation. 
The Federal Aviation Administration has adopted a new aircraft certification policy. In late 2020, Congress passed sweeping legislation to reform how the FAA certifies new airplanes. Manufacturers are required to disclose certain safety-critical information. Systems that manipulate flight controls without direct pilot input are the largest concern, like those involved in two fatal Boeing 737 MAX crashes in 2018 and 2019. Those accidents killed 346 passengers. Boeing did not disclose key details of a safety system called MCAS to the FAA. MCAS was linked to both fatal crashes. The system was designed to help counter a tendency of the MAX to pitch upward. The FAA is still considering whether to certify the smaller MAX 7 and larger MAX 10. And New York drivers, listen up. Some who renewed their driver's licenses during part of the pandemic must submit a vision test. The DMV says motorists face license suspensions on Friday if they fail to do so. Nearly 50,000 drivers statewide could have their licenses suspended. Suspensions would affect drivers whose licenses expired between March 1st, 2020 and August 31st, 2021. Over the last two years, the DMV has sent notices to impacted drivers about the risk of suspension as the deadline approached. A pandemic era rule allowed drivers to temporarily self-certify their vision test requirement. People can take a vision test from a state approved location or submit a vision test report form. Driving with a suspended license in New York can result in fines between $200 and $500 or 30 days in jail. Kansas Governor Laura Kelly is putting the brakes on the production of a new state license plate. People took to social media after the governor's office unveiled a proposed plate last week. Many were angry over the color scheme, saying it's too close to those of the University of Missouri, a rival of the University of Kansas. It featured a mostly gold background with two navy stars on each side and a navy stripe at the top with Kansas written in gold. The plate had the words, to the stars, written on the bottom. Those words are a tribute to the state motto, through adversity to the stars. But people didn't like it. So it's back to the drawing board. The governor's office says it will provide a number of options and let the people vote on the one they like best. Here with us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss Apple's partnership with Goldman Sachs. According to the Wall Street Journal, Apple is ending its partnership with the investment bank. Don, what did this report say? Well, it seems like Apple could be ending the partnership with Goldman Sachs uh, potentially uh, from the next 12 to 15 months. And this is according to people familiar with the matter who have been briefed. And the two are going to dissolve their entire consumer partnership. So, you know, think about Apple Card. Uh, a lot of people use that, uh, around 6 million people. And Apple has a high yield savings account as well in partnership with Goldman Sachs. So those two things could be potentially impacted. Um, and, and the Apple savings uh, account yields 4%, over 4%. So that could be a, a lot for some people. And what led to this are, uh, there were rumors earlier this year that suggested uh, Goldman wanted to cut back on its uh, consumer business. Um, and it seems like the two have gotten off on the wrong foot, potentially. It wasn't a smooth relationship uh, from the beginning. 
Apple ran ads saying that the card wasn't from a bank and apparently some executives at Goldman found that to be uh, slightly irritating. Uh, this is according to what the Wall Street Journal said. So then what's next for Apple Card and the high yield savings account? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. You know, at this point, it's unclear if Apple has lined up a, a new issuer for the card. Goldman has uh, discussed uh, potentially handing things off to American Express uh, for the program, uh, but it's unclear if those discussions have actually continued. Um, there's another player, though, that could be potentially uh, next. Uh, Synchrony Financial has also been looking at the possibility, possibility of taking over the credit card program. And this is a company uh, known as the largest issuer of store credit cards. but. If you ask me what I think personally, uh, whether Apple continues with this or, or not, I think for the consumer, I do believe it's going to be a smooth transition. All right, what else do you have for us today, Don? Sure, uh, it seems like U.S. home prices hit another record high in September, rising for the eighth straight month, according to data released Tuesday. Mortgage rates uh, remained above 7% in September. However, uh, historically low inventory actually continued to raise home prices. In fact, they remain at an all-time high in Atlanta, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, and several other cities as well. Home prices you know, grew nearly 7% in September alone in Detroit and San Diego and New York. But in other news, U.S. economic growth was even stronger in the third quarter than previously estimated. Gross domestic product rose at an annualized rate of 5.2%, from July through September, and this is according to the Commerce Department's second estimate, which were released this morning. Today's st uh, estimate reflects an even faster pace of growth than the previous 4.9% rate the department initially reported. But after a robust third quarter, it seems like the U.S. economy could be heading for a slower growth uh, expected at a much slower pace uh, in the final months of this year. Uh, this is as pandemic savings dwindle and interest rates remain at a 22-year high. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you. Amazon is rolling out its palm scanning technology to the business world. The company says it could replace key badges and pin codes. Instead, there would be, some, there would be biometric matching using palm and vein imagery technology. Employees just have to hover their hand over the device for it to recognize them and let them through the door. The technology could also be, be connected to computers or other systems to authenticate users. Amazon says it has a 99% accuracy rate. The service is currently available in preview in the U.S. Companies like IHG Hotels and Resorts have already signed up for, as customers for the new technology. And a deadly listeria outbreak is, being, is causing fruit to be recalled from major retailers across the country. That's the warning from the Food and Drug Administration. HMC Farms issued the recall for some of its peaches, plums and nectarines earlier this month. The FDA says some of the retailers they were sold to include Publix, Walmart, Sam's Club, Sprouts Farmers Market, Albertsons and Aldi. They were sold between May 1st and November 15th of last year and this year. But the agency is also warning that the fruit also went to companies that may have frozen or relabeled it. Consumers are being urged to throw out all of those types of frozen fruit. 
However, the FDA says any fruit currently on store shelves is not affected by the recall. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, at least 11 cases of listeria have been reported in seven states. Ten people had to be hospitalized and one person died. A pregnant woman also went into early labor after becoming ill. And hikers out west no longer have to contend with spring-loaded cyanide traps. It's good news for coyotes, bad news for ranchers. The Bureau of Land Management has stopped using the traps against livestock predators. The Bureau manages an area twice the size of California, much of it where ranchers graze cattle and sheep. According to the USDA Wildlife Services, the devices have killed thousands of pets and wildlife. They have a scented bait and emit a poisonous cloud when triggered. Wildlife Services has used the traps for decades, mostly in the West. Since 2008, Congress members on eight different times tried to ban them, but never got enough support to pass the legislation. The devices consist of a stake driven into the ground with a spring and canister loaded with cyanide. They're marked inconsistently and sometimes not at all. People have mistaken them for sprinkler heads or survey markers. Some have been seriously harmed over the last 25 years. Authorities in Massachusetts have finally identified remains found on the side of a highway nearly 40 years ago. Back in 1985, a driver who stopped on Interstate 195 West in Fairhaven saw a human skeleton in the brush, but the person's identity was a mystery. The Bristol County District Attorney's Office recently took a fresh look at the case and used DNA from the skeleton to get a genetic profile. They compared that profile to thousands of others and created a family tree for him. This year, the remains were identified as Keith Olson of Cranston, Rhode Island. Olson disappeared in 1981 at the age of 27. Investigators are now trying to figure out who killed Olson. Anyone with information in the Olson case is urged to call Massachusetts State Police. Coming up, is Turkey finally allowing Sweden to become part of NATO? Turkey previously accused Sweden of supporting terrorists. Find out what Swedish officials are saying today. And heads of state arguing over sculptures. We'll bring you an update on the dispute between Greece and the UK. Who will end up with the sculptures currently in a British museum? That and more when we return. Welcome back and now some top news from the UK, Germany and other European countries. The first NATO-Ukraine Council taking place in Brussels today. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and many other international leaders are discussing the, the situation in Ukraine. They're renewing pledges to support the country as it continues to fight Russia. Here's British Foreign Minister David Cameron and others. Work out what other concrete steps we can take to help the Ukrainians in their struggle and to show that Russian aggression must never pay. Russia has amassed a large missile stockpile ahead of winter. And we see new attempts to strike Ukraine's power grid and energy infrastructure, trying to leave Ukraine in the dark and cold. We must and we will continue to support Ukraine. I heard no sense of uh, a fatigue or, or falling back. On the contrary, a determination to continue to press forward. And there's a good reason for that. I think every ally recognizes that this is a matter not only of doing the right thing, it's a matter of self-interest. 
including for the United States. Over to Sweden's NATO bid. Turkey has told Sweden it'll ratify its long-delayed accession within weeks. Sweden and Finland asked to join NATO last year after Russia invaded Ukraine, but Turkey's president raised objections. That's because the two countries protect groups that Ankara deems terrorists, such as a Kurdish separatist group. Yesterday, I had a bilateral with my colleague, uh, the foreign minister of Turkey, Hakan Fidan, where he told me that he expected the ratification to take place within weeks. And, of course, we don't take anything for granted from, from the side of Sweden, but we look forward to this being completed. Germany set to, at last, reach NATO's military spending goals. The military spending goal for NATO members is 2% of a country's GDP. However, many don't meet that number. The U.S. is the second highest spender with around 3.5%, only behind Poland, which spends almost 4%. It's important that we invest in our security together as an alliance. This also means that Germany will fulfill its 2% commitments next year, just as many other countries will do by July next year. Forcing foreigners to sign a loyalty agreement. Russia wants to forbid foreigners from criticizing Russian policy and discrediting Soviet military history. Russia's Interior Ministry prepared draft legislation that would make it mandatory for non-Russians to sign a document when they enter Russia, agreeing to limit what they say. Since Russian troops entered Ukraine early last year, Russia has introduced a slew of tough laws such as outlawing discrediting the military. Courts also handed down long jail sentences to opposition activists. An update on the dispute between Greece and the UK regarding sculptures from the Parthenon which are in a British museum. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak cancelled the scheduled meeting yesterday. He says that's because the Greek Prime Minister was planning to demand Britain return the sculptures to Greece. Here's what the two say about the issue today, starting with Sunak defending his reason to cancel the meeting. But when it was clear that the purpose of a meeting was not to discuss substantive issues for the future, but rather to grandstand and relitigate issues of the past, it wasn't appropriate. The best of success. I returned yesterday from London. Just two words about the unfortunate event of the cancellation of my programmed meeting with my British counterpart. My first observation is that I believe it will not affect Greek-British relations in the long run. And now shifting gears, we have some short headlines from countries in Asia and Oceania. A U.S. military aircraft crashed today into the sea near Japan. At least one crew member was killed. Japan's Coast Guard said it found what appeared to be wreckage from the tilt rotor V-22 Osprey. The military aircraft crashed just before 3 p.m. local time some two miles off the coast of western Japan. Six people were on board the plane. Search and rescue operations are underway. The Japan Coast Guard said one person has been found. A witness said the aircraft's left engine appeared to be on fire as it approached an airport for an emergency landing. 
Staying in Japan, the country's space agency was hit with a cyber attack. The agency didn't elaborate on when it happened. The spokesperson said the hackers may have accessed information, but they didn't access anything important for rocket and satellite operations. The Japanese agency said they learned of the cyber attack after receiving information from an external organization and then conducting an internal investigation. Japanese media reported that the attack took place in the summer, and police notified the, P the space agency this fall. India will formally investigate security concerns coming from the United States. This is over a foiled plot to murder a Sikh separatist leader. Earlier this month, the White House warned India about its involvement in the thwarted plot. The Sikh separatist leader is in the U.S. The White House said it was treating the issue with utmost seriousness and that it had raised the concerns with India at the most senior levels. India's foreign ministry said today they are officially probing America's concerns. The issue comes at a delicate time for both India and the Biden administration as they try to build closer ties. And in Australia, the country's attorney general is giving a green light for a foreign interference trial. A marketing executive who worked in China is facing charges. Alexander Sergo appeared on a video link in a Sydney court today. He's accused of accepting cash from suspected Chinese intelligence agents in exchange for writing reports on Australia, including its nuclear submarine program. Sergo has denied the allegations and has not yet entered a plea. He's been in custody since Australian police arrested him when he returned from Shanghai in April. The marketing executive was the second person charged under Australia's foreign interference law. Dozens of Hong Kong's top pro-democracy figures found out today when they can expect a verdict, close to three years after being arrested. They're being tried under the Chinese regime's national security law. A national security judge in the case said today a verdict could be expected in early 2024. The 47 Hong Kong activists and politicians were charged with conspiracy to commit subversion. That was for holding an unofficial primary election in 2020 to decide who should take part in city lawmaker elections. Many say the plan was part of the oppositional politics that have long been allowed in Hong Kong. Beijing imposed its vague and sweeping national security law on Hong Kong in 2020, following mass pro-democracy protests in 2019. 67-year-old pro-democracy protester Grandma Wong was outside the courtroom today. Police escorted her away for waving a British flag. She later returned with a sign that said, Free 47, free all. Pressure is mounting to address threats from Iran. The U.S. says the Middle Eastern country is the world's leading state sponsor of terror. The regime backs Hamas, the terror group that launched the deadly October 7th attack on Israel. We speak with Andrews Kaur from the Journal of Political Risk about how the U.S. and its allies can stem the growing danger posed by Iran. Andrews Kaur, thank you for joining us. The Biden administration is retaliating against Iranian proxies in Syria and Iraq who've attacked U.S. bases there. But you've said we should go further than that. What would that look like? Iran is, you know, not only supporting proxies in, in, in the Middle East, but they're supporting Russia in its attacks against Ukraine in terms of providing uh, military material. Um, so I've long argued that we should consider striking Iranian uh, weapons factories that are producing the weapons that are uh, targeting Kiev, Lvov, other other cities, civilians, innocent civilians in Ukraine. 
Um, so Iran is just a, a very bad actor internationally. That has that that strategy, of course, would have to be weighed against the effects that it might have in Iranian society. Iran, the you know the people in Iran, a lot of them are very against the Tehran regime, the mullahs, the theocracy in, in Iran, and uh, you know direct attacks on Iranian military facilities in Iran, uh, you know, I think it, I'm not sure what the effects would be on public opinion, uh, whether it would hurt or harm the possibility that you could have a, a democratic uh, overthrow of the dictatorship there. Yeah. Yeah. And you said Iran's ruling mullahs may actually want a U.S. and allied attack on Iran um, because it could strengthen their position domestically. What are the risks of attacking Iran? That would be the primary risk. Um, you know, it the, the the notion that it could escalate the war uh, more uh, is something that the Biden administration is really trying to avoid. We want to, we've long been trying to extricate ourselves from the Middle East and uh, rebalance to Asia to defend uh, Taiwan, Japan, and our other allies there from China. And getting embroiled in another war with Iran is, is difficult. But at the same time, Iran is trying to go nuclear, and we don't want another nuclear weapon state uh, on the other side. We are, we're already dealing with Russia and China. It would make it much more difficult if Iran tried to go nuclear. We've pledged not to allow Iran to go nuclear. Uh, Israel has, taken, has made strikes on Iran in the past. So, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle. Yeah, and Anders, we've seen a number of incidents escalating tensions in the Middle East. There's October 7th, um, attacks on U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq, like I mentioned, um, Houthi rebels seizing an Israeli-linked ship. All of these reportedly stem from Iranian influence. What's their motivation in all this? Iran is deeply anti-Semitic. They're anti-Jewish, um, and they are anti-American in part because uh, we support Israel. Um, you know, the Middle East historically, for hundreds of years, has been anti-Semitic, and they've tried, they've treated Jews like second-class citizens, and that's why uh, Jewish people had to get their own state to defend themselves. And this October seven attack is a case in point. Um, they're you know the 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 limit on Iran and and many Muslims against Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish people is their abilities, not any kind of morality, and so uh, this is why we have a Jewish state that's aggressively defending itself. All right, Anders Core, principal at Core Analytics. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the spire of the Notre Dame Cathedral reappears on Paris's skyline. That's four years after it was devastated in a tragic fire. What's the latest on the repairs? And from a height of more than 60 feet in the Arctic Circle, a kayaker has made the largest glacial waterfall descent of all time. More of the dramatic footage shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is getting a new spire. The iconic structure collapsed during a devastating fire in 2019. 
Workers have started installing the framework for the new spire, which is made of oak and will be, exact, will be an exact replica of the previous one. The framework of the new spire is expected to be completed by the end of December, but it will remain covered until scaffold, in scaffolding until the roof and ornaments are installed. Notre Dame is a renowned UNESCO World Heritage Site and used to attract 13 million visitors annually. The cathedral is due to reopen next December. Kayaking is a wonderful way to relax, but not if you add in a 65-foot icy waterfall. It seems everything is a little more extreme in the Arctic Circle. A professional kayaker just completed the largest recorded descent of a glacial waterfall. The adventurer navigated through challenging rapids and ice tunnels before the epic descent. The glacial river is on an ice cap in Norway. Accessing the waterfall was no easy task as the crew had to climb up the ice cap from a boat using only a ladder. And then they trekked nearly seven miles across the ice, crossing streams and crevasses. He has become the first person to conquer the waterfall. The kayaker named the descent Phillips Ladder as a tribute to his crew. The world's biggest cruise ship is making its way toward Florida. Royal Caribbean is officially taking ownership and possession of the Icon of the Seas, a 20-deck, 250,000-ton ship. The handover took place today at a shipyard where it was built in Finland. The Icon of the Seas has the capacity to hold nearly 10,000 passengers and crew. It also includes the world's largest water park at sea, the ship was originally scheduled for delivery in early 2022, but was delayed due to the pandemic. Icon of the Seas is now headed to southern Spain before it heads to, the, to Miami, where it will, be, will set sail late January to tour the Caribbean. Be extra mindful of your deliveries today. It's National Package Protection Day. The day is always observed the Wednesday after Thanksgiving, following the Black Friday and Cyber Monday shopping sprees. About 1.7 million parcels are lost or stolen in the U.S. each day, and that number tends to increase during the holiday season. Several states have laws against porch piracy, including Texas, New York, Oklahoma, and Georgia, but most of these crimes go unreported. To celebrate or observe National Package Protection Day, raise awareness about lost or stolen packages and stay alert during high delivery times. And thinking less can deliver you some life-changing benefits. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Think less? That can't be right, can it? Or even possible. We are taught from a young age that the key to a better life is to use our brains more and to develop stronger reasoning skills. But what if I told you that the path to happier and calmer days could be in letting go of the need for hyper-rationality? You are probably better off leaning into the intuition that you've developed over a lifetime of living. Here are some of the benefits you can enjoy from thinking less. Let's start with number one, wisdom. Thinking less allows you to tap into a deeper type of knowledge than logic alone. Often we know something in our gut way before our brain can articulate the reasons. Number two, engagement. When we think less, we live more in the moment. Let's face it, deep thinking pulls us out of the flow of everyday life. And overthinking makes it even worse. It makes you feel like real life is drifting by while you are lost in your thoughts. Number three, calm. Remember that the longer you toss around a decision in your brain, the less certain you'll become and the more stressed you'll feel. 
Living intuitively means humbly admitting that you don't know everything. Letting go of trying to control life without thinking can give us a sense of calm. Number four, inspiration. Thinking tends to oversimplify the complex reality of life. You might imagine that there are only two options and that you have to choose between them. In fact, there are far more options and shades to choice than you ever considered. And finally, number five, ease. Living with less internal debate can lift a weight off your chest. Constantly thinking is an exhausting state to live in. Your brain never rests and you never feel completely at ease. When you realize you don't have to live like that anymore, you'll feel as light as a feather. Some mind-bending information, a supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy is spinning rapidly and altering space-time around it. That's according to a study published in October in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The black hole is called Sagittarius I-star. A team of physicists observed it 26,000 light years from Earth using NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory Telescope. The study's lead author, Penn State physics professor Ruth Daly, says the spin of Sagittarius I-star means it's dramatically altering the shape of space-time in its vicinity. That means light is traveling in a curved line around it, and the space around it is distorted like a football. Daly adds that the altering of space-time is nothing to worry about, but the information could be very useful to astronomers in the future. It also helps scientists test the limits of one of Einstein's biggest theories, general relativity. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.